Hello friends of Soul Kitchen, my name is Jasper Mutsaert. I'm an entrepreneur, adventurer, coach and wisdom seeker. With this podcast I thrive to inspire people to live their quest. Soul Kitchen is a place where we gather and share stories that empower us to move through emotional healing and work on our personal growth to contribute to a better world. With Soul Kitchen I'm interviewing people that excite me and once in a while I will also share my own experiences and reflections. Each episode provides you with a recipe so you can live your quest. What is your quest? Hello, friends of the Soul Kitchen. Thank you for listening to a new episode. I'm in the north of Portugal at the moment, and I'm sitting next to Stephen Ebers, who is a breathwork facilitator, a coach, the founder of Breath Life. He's trained as a psychologist and also a former professional athlete. I met Stephen eight years ago during a project when we were trying to crowdfund a private island in Sweden. It was a very exciting uh, project that we both learned a lot uh, from. And now eight years later, I'm meeting him in Portugal, where he is one of the facilitators of a one-month breathwork co-living organized by a company called Innate that I uh, decided to join. And I invited Stephen because the breath fascinates me uh, deeply. I've been engaged in breathwork for a few years now. It has really helped me to, I would say, release trauma, to release emotions, to get closer to myself, to my body. And every time I do breathwork, the unconscious becomes conscious. And I consider breathwork kind of as a, as a guide for life. So that's why I um, invited Stephen. And by listening to this episode, you will learn about his recipe for life and about his experience with the breath and his life experience in general. It's so good to uh, to meet you, uh, Stephen. How are you doing? Yes. Thanks so much for having me. Really enjoying this. I'm curious, what is the recipe that you want to share with the listeners today? <laughs> yes, the recipe I want to share. Well, I was, I was thinking about this. What's the recipe? And I guess... Um, it starts with a dish, right? What it, what is it you're trying actually to create? So so for me, the dish is very much about a, a full spectrum life experience. Uh, I think that's what it means to be alive. So my recipe for that is basically uh, obviously the breath, um, movement, and a uh, and a and the world of feeling, the emotional body. That's my. Um, that's my recipe. Your recipe, and how did you get interested in um, in the breath at the first uh, uh, the first time? Yeah, I think my first exposure to breath work was around eight years ago. Was at a program, your lab, actually. Mm. Um, I didn't realize it was breath work at the time. We were just asked to lie down. Everyone started to make a sound and breathe, and within ten minutes, the whole room was crying. And we've been doing practices for four days, but this hadn't happened yet. And I was like, wow. Um, at the time, I didn't realize it was breathwork at all, but it really stayed with me. So whenever I came across similar type of experiences, I, I joined them, uh, breathing or sometimes with uh, voicing as well. And a couple of years ago, I became a coach. Uh, my original background was in psychology. And I noticed that I, when I was coaching people, to a certain extent, we were just talking. We were just talking and engaging with all these narratives, but I could see in people there was more to them. 
and there was more to this and and I felt like in the coach, coaching conversations the the embodied element was missing and at that same time I started to explore more and more breathwork and yeah I was like that's it that's the bit that's missing and I found that breathwork was as a language accessible enough for people to engage with it uh, simple enough but at the same time deeply um, effective as a, as a tool to access a different narrative um, so yeah so that's how I got into it more and more uh, myself I trained as a facilitator and that's now what I do so you said that you're missing the embodiment in normal coaching conversations can you elaborate on that absolutely I think uh, I think well if I speak for the, the western world that I grew up in it's very much around um, our intellectual capacity um, our thinking our head our mind um, whereas for me that's maybe five percent of what's actually happening in the moment um and i think a lot of us have never learned properly to communicate with our body and to speak our body's vocabulary um but so often when you speak to someone they'll talk about joy or sadness but their face doesn't move that doesn't make sense to a human being uh, and yet we've become so accustomed to it that we don't even call it out anymore but in nature, that would be the scariest thing you can come across when an animal behaves in two ways at the same time, right? Because um, you become unpredictable. And I felt like in the coaching conversations, are we've been so trained and, and we are so equipped to develop such strong narratives and arguments and, and like why we think what we think and why we do what we do, um, that they have become such, such a dominant force that we forgot that there's a whole nother story. So when I noticed in, in, in sessions, when I started to point things out, like, hey, you say you're sad, where do you feel that sadness? People weren't able to point at a point in their body where sadness lives in the body, it doesn't live in the mind. Or uh, they would be saying, yeah, I'm totally happy, but their head would go up and down. I would call it out. I was like, hey, what's the head saying? And from there I discovered like, wow, we're just talking. To a certain extent, we're just talking. And sure, we can talk about habits and changes, et cetera, et cetera. But a, a full live experience happens in a full body, not just in a brain. Um, so, yeah. And, and, and from there, I, I found that the breath basically skips all the stories. It just goes where it wants to go. And it always tends to go to a point of tension. Or there is a resistance. And the resistance in itself has a story to tell. Um, and that's for me where the embodiment comes in. So the mind takes over and people start telling stories, arguments or things that they think are right. But the body maybe has a different answer. Yeah. And when you do breath work, you can find tension and resistance. But how does this work physically or biologically? Can you elaborate on, on that? Through a scientific lens. Yeah, maybe like how sometimes when I do breath work, unconsciously certain topics come up. Yeah. But how does the body know that these topics are important or how does that work? Yes, that's a fantastic question. Um, to a certain extent, I don't think we have an answer to that. Um, how I understand it, I understand the breath as a um, random amplifier. When you start to focus on your breathing and actually let it flow through your body, into your lungs, into the body, it will amplify a tension in your body. Now, the tension itself 
to me makes a lot of sense because that's fundamentally how trauma works right and and this is not always a car crash or or something else that happened it can also be something smaller um any trauma is simply a small wound and um any wound that's not fully processed will stay present if the energy hasn't left the body it will stay in the body for me it's as simple as that so the breath tends to go where the energy is now we are the ones that connect stories to that so it doesn't find the story i think it simply finds attention and that tension might be because you're not sitting in the right posture or it might be something bigger in your life um so yeah, how that biologically exactly works, I'm not able to explain. I know it does, and I know it tends to find tension in people. Um, and once the first tension is removed, it tends to find another one. Um, because the body knows, it just doesn't have the capacity to actively speak. Yeah. So your job, I think, is to learn how to speak your body's language. So it uh, brings you to the, to the tension and can bring people release. And um, this month, You've invited 25 people uh, to come to Portugal yes. together with, uh, with your partners of uh, Innate. Uh, why did you decide to be part of this experiment? First of all, because I love an experiment. <laughs> um, I think, first of all, what really spoke to me was the name Innate, right? Which fundamentally means that um, which you are born with. And... I think when we're born, we're the closest to our own body as we can possibly be. I think there's a chance we'll never reach that level ever again. Um, so yeah, this is very much in line with my work. It's about what you're born with and can you get access to that again? Um, I think the second thing that fascinated me about this project was that we had a full month to work with people, um, which means that normally when I run sessions, there's always newcomers in the group. So you kind of always have to start at zero or at least make it accessible for um those who've joined for the first time but this was an opportunity to go beyond that and to really go beyond that first layer second layer and see what then comes um because i think that's when um yeah when healing and, and, and deep processing actually happens when there's um not the one big catharsis but the general uh, more gentle exposure to tension and learning to tolerate that and, and, and regulate ourselves in the presence of stress or tension. Hmm. And what have you experienced this month uh, with the people that have participated? What are the topics that came to you? Yeah, so many. I mean, this is the bit that always fascinates me. It, it, you sit in a room with 25 people, you give them all the same instructions, they listen to the same music, they're in the presence of the same people, and yet you get 25 different stories. Uh, and this never stops to fascinate me, how unique everyone is and how it is genuinely impossible to judge a book by its cover. You don't know what's happening inside and fundamentally you'll never will. Um, so I think one of the interesting topics for me that really came up is, first of all, to a certain extent, and this is not a judgment of the people here, but I think it's a sign of our Western society, how numb we are, how how through all the stress that we expose ourselves to, we've basically become numb to the extent that we can't really fully feel anymore. Um, and I'm not any different in that sense. Um, and this 
always surprises me. At the same time, I know this is the case. So that's the first thing. It's like, wow, it takes a lot that as soon as you actually start breathing with people, boom, we, we, we shoot through that numbness straight away. Um, and I think topics that come up are, are, are all over the place. But I think the interesting thing is that tension between, on one hand, a deep need to go towards the tension and at the same time, the resistance. So we know it's good for us, but at the same time, it's super scary to explore. And then what that tension actually is about is almost not relevant anymore. Once the tension lives inside the body, the tension is what we need to work with rather than the story that's attached to the tension, um, which is good news, right? Because we can't change stories. Stories happened, mm -hmm. but the tension you can work with, the tension can be released. Um, so that's the bit that I find interesting um, and how strong the resistance can be or how sometimes our nervous system says, I'm simply not ready yet. And learning to respect that boundary and learning when to push into it. Um, yeah. You I'm quite curious to hear your about experience yeah. actually. So you mentioned numbness. Yeah. Um, I'll tell about my experience in a second. So yeah. do you also mean addictions with numbness or is that something different? I think, I think addictions are an indirect expression of a numbness. So I think um, a healthy body wants to feel and a healthy body naturally knows how to regulate the ups and downs. Um, when we don't know how to regulate our ups and downs, it tends to, that energy has to go somewhere. Um, and it's often a pain. So we find alternative ways to soothe ourselves. And this might be excessive um, working out right we see this in a western society oh go to the gym endlessly it's like wow you really think that's healthy or are we trying to process something here in my honest opinion um it might be through food right i mean i definitely notice i'm definitely a big emotional eater now what are the moments when i buy chocolate it's the moments when i feel vulnerable right um and i think eventually this is what addiction is right addiction is the and I think this is a general misunderstanding and Gabor Mate talks a lot about this, but like an addiction uh, in itself is not the problem. The addiction is actually your way of regulating yourself. So it should be looked at with love. Even the most extreme addiction should be looked at through the lens of love. It's you trying to love yourself, trying to take care of yourself. So the behavior or the substance or whatever it is you use is not the problem. It's covering something inside of you that you are struggling with as an individual. Um, so that's where the focus needs to be with addiction. Because otherwise, and I think we even talked about this during the month, the addiction will just transfer to something else. Yeah. I use a site that blocks LinkedIn, and then I go on Instagram. Right? <laughs> I, I block Instagram, and I block LinkedIn. I go to buy chocolate. Right? So the addiction is not the problem. The addiction is an attempt to suit myself. Yeah, so that's that's a funny one. So for me, the experiences, uh, one of my intentions has been to uh, research my addictive behaviors yeah. and see what I want to do with it. So in April, I quit drinking. And during this month, I quit coffee and I quit all unnecessary sugar. Amazing. But it was a process because the first week I had a lot of headaches when I quit coffee and I started drinking a lot of Coke. Yes. I started <laughs> drinking a lot of Coke. But then one week later, I got rid of it too. And I feel really happy about it. And the breath definitely feels like this daily activity where I can feel grounded, can feel centered. And it's definitely part of the replacement of these addictive behaviors yeah. together with walking. Um, 
So that has been my theme this month. And I liked that you sent me to Gabor Mate. I started watching an episode with him and Tim Ferriss mm. where they talk about trauma, addiction, and ayahuasca. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What What is your view on on, on trauma and and addiction and 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 breath work? Because I feel these are topics that are often connected. Yeah. Or maybe people that are drawn to breath work have a certain addiction or maybe certain trauma to process, but how is that in your experience? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, I, I personally haven't worked that much with addiction, right? So I don't want to pretend here I'm the expert, but, and obviously with addiction, eventually you'll develop a craving, right? Which is just a biological mechanism that you first will need to fight um, or endure, right? Which might be the headaches or whatever it might be. Um but fundamentally, what what Kabar Mate says is um, positive benefits in the short term, short term, negative uh, benefits in the um, or negative consequences, obviously, in the long term, and an inability to control it. That's fundamentally what an addiction is. Um, so, so for me, the connection between breathwork addiction and trauma is that once you through breathwork start to work with the trauma, the addictions will most likely become less, because fundamentally through breath work, you learn how to regulate your own nervous system. That's fundamentally what we're doing. A lot of us have not been taught. And again, this is no one's fault. This is systematic failure on, on so many levels. Um, not intentional, or at least I don't believe it's intentional, but it's systematic failure in teaching people how to self-regulate. I think that's fundamentally the, the, the big issue here, uh, combined with the society that puts so much pressure on us. So through breath work, it's one of the many tools out there that will allow you to uh, to first tolerate discomfort, learning how to deal with a little bit of discomfort. Because as soon as the discomfort comes, that's normally when we show our soothing, self-soothing behavior, which in a dysfunctional way might be a drug or a substance or whatever it is you do or go to the gym, right? Whereas going to the gym is arguably a bit of a healthier form, but it can still be an addictive behavior. Um Whereas when you learn to regulate that discomfort, where you learn to tolerate a little bit of discomfort, then do you still really need that, that addictive behavior? It will probably go down. And this is what I tend to see in people once they learn how to, um, once they learn how to regulate, once they learn how to de-stress, once they learn how to tolerate um, discomfort, go through it processes and let it, let it come out of the other side, they start to work less. I've seen this in entrepreneurs. They start the company, they get 200 million pounds in funding and they go through the roof and they feel numb. They don't know how to connect to their environment anymore, right? And then I start to work with them. And what you see is that actually, hey, this whole entire company that I created is one big projection of my own pain. Yeah. And I'm trying to suit myself and, and my work has become my addiction because otherwise I have to look at myself. And the truth is, I don't really know how. That's not to say all entrepreneurs have this problem, but I wouldn't be surprised mm. if to a certain extent the, the need to, to conquer the world <laughs> is also a deep need to be seen, loved, and heard. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I do think those things are really tied together. Yeah. And with the entrepreneur, uh, can you give an example of someone, uh, you don't have to mention a name, but, but <laughs> the pain that someone experienced and then the, what they created? Absolutely. I, I think, um, and it doesn't even have to be about an individual, but fundamentally what you see is that entrepreneurship 
in itself, I mean, well, I think 90% of startups, I mean, you know the numbers, but 90% of startups don't exist anymore after three years. In other words, you massively tap into the world of survival. Like it's our modern day version of going into the woods with, with a crappy tool and trying to fight off tigers, right? So the amount of stress that you're under as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur is, is humongous. So you constantly are tapped into your sympathetic nervous system, your fight flight. Now, when you're fundamentally constantly under so much pressure and you're basically running away in fear, try to have a good conversation with someone in that state. It's practically impossible, right? When we are under stress and our sympathetic uh, nervous system is activated, our body is flooded with numbing, um, numbing hormones, which makes total sense, right? Because we might be under attack. We, don't, we need to survive. We, we physically can't feel. And this is the part I think society often skips, right? Um, so this is what you see in a lot of entrepreneurs. Loneliness, right? Um, relatively bad self-regulation. Again, through no fault of their own. It's, it's by design, yeah. right? Because they have not to just care for themselves. They have employers who need to get paid. The, they have all the decisions to be made, one wrong decision and your company could be gone, right? So it's, it's literally the modern day of, modern day version of a complete survival context that you're operating in. And when you're operating that long enough and you keep flushing yourself with all these sympathetic stress, adrenaline type hormones, eventually you stop feeling. So that's what people come to me with. They say, I can't feel myself. I find meaningless. I can't connect to my wife. I can't connect to my kids, uh, whatever it might be. I don't know how to sit with myself for more than five minutes without basically freaking out or having to grab my phone or a laptop or send an email, right? And that's deeply distressing for the individual. Um, and breathwork can be a solution for that. So I saw on your website that you connect people to their simple self. Mm. That that's your mission. Yeah. And uh, with Breath Life, um, yeah, you offer coaching work and experiences and also checked your your values mm. i found three so one is um uh, everything should be an experience mm. two you want to work in a committed environment mm. and three everything is an experiment yeah why did you chose uh, these three as your core values yes um well the first thing i mean it goes back to experience is like life is basically uh however old you get that many years of an experience that's all it is so if you don't experience the experience why are you alive what's the point in living if you don't experience it fully so for me it's as simple as that um i do want to work in a committed environment because i feel like um i've worked in quite a lot of environments where where there's a little bit of a without sounding too judgmental but there's a little bit of a lack of um awareness on why you're actually doing what you're doing and once i'm so i'm not necessarily saying like you have to be good or super self-aware or and who knows where i'm on that spectrum right but um i do find it important that when people say we're going to do this then we're going to do it that's not to say that they can't back out if it becomes too much but something i really struggle with and i think we see this a lot in, in especially our western society is like yeah we'll do a little bit you know, we'll we'll split the garbage, but we won't stop flying. It's like, come on, right? We solve it or we don't, right? Or we're gonna try to to make a change or we don't. And um, so that's for me the committed environment. 
and the experiment. I mean, I love experimentation. I think experimentation is where that. That's for me where true innovation happens, whether that's on a personal level or on a world level. And also, I, I really want to move away a bit from this weird expert driven world that we live in now where you know there's no more place to be the student there's no more place to be playful there's no more place to say hey i'm curious about this so i want to try it's like you're either an expert or you have to shut your mouth and you're not allowed to experience or do anything and i think this is very much reflected also in our in our system now right we go on a two-day course and we call ourselves an expert (laughs) it's absolute nonsense right (laughs) Like, like I had a friend the other day who said, like, who had a teacher and he asked him, like, oh, I really love this practice. Can I do it? And the answer was, yes, in 25 years. <laughs> right. And that should be it. Like, where where can we still be a student? Where can we experiment with things? And I think by celebrating the experiment, we lose our attachment to the outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. By celebrating an experiment, you're saying. The, 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 the achievement is trying it rather than if it's a success or not. Because otherwise, if you already know the outcome, it's not an experiment, is it? So um, that's why I find that super important, because I think that's where fun happens. I think that's fascinating. So you're saying that in current society, people pretend to be an expert pretty soon. Yes. I guess it's also because of the rise of social media that you can claim anything, right? You can yes. change your status, uh, where certain um, certain professions, especially in the in the realm of teaching, require a lot of education. Yeah. I also like experimentation and that's how I got to know you because eight years ago I had the idea to buy a private island. It was kind of a dream, but I realized that I didn't have enough money. Uh, I was looking at a a website where you can uh, buy and rent private islands. So the idea was if 100 people uh, invest 2000 euro, we could buy the island. And uh, the tagline was, want to share a slice of paradise. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember you joined uh, the the project team. So how do you look back at that specific project? Yeah, I really remember. It was so much fun. Like I reached out to you just before that, I think. And we sort of had one conversation. And suddenly on Facebook Messenger, I got this message saying, hey, you want to help buy private islands? (laughs) I was like, what is this about? But I think I knew back then through that one message that I was dealing with someone I'd be interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for me, like this was very early in in, in my journey. Um, and I think the bit that spoke to me was the, um, it was, there was such a lack of compromise. Like we're going to go all in on this. We're, <laughs> we're going to, we're going to not just, you know, um, try to get a piece of land no we're going to buy an entire island with a, with a hundred or a thousand people I don't remember the exact number. so there was no compromise and, and i was i was like yes that's cool right who cares if it works or not maybe we get four people maybe we get four thousand people but there was such a um in a positive way a lack of compromise mm. and and that really spoke to me and i think um it was all about bucket lists yes right yeah. it was all about bucket lists and i think like back then my bucket list was a big thing because I noticed that I had to keep myself accountable. So I made a bucket list when I was 18 and I'm indirectly, I guess, still working on it and it has over a hundred things on it. So I was like, wow, this is some ultimate bucket list <laughs> stuff going on here. I, I, yeah, I would love to find a way to be part of this. That's cool. So the lack yeah. of compromise. Yeah. I never realized that that was the power of the project. Uh, but I do agree. Sometimes when you learn, when you uh, launch something big, it's more appealing than when you launch a small project. Yeah, and less competition. And less competition, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. yeah, so it got a lot of attention. Yeah. 
um, and maybe it hits a bit the the that some people want to do something different, right? I think all the people that showed up wanted to do something different. Um, what did you do after? I remember you moved to London. Yeah. Uh, so what happened afterwards? What happened afterwards? Um, a lot. Like I studied originally psychology, and I think because basically in Holland the insurances have taken over the entire mental health system. I remember sitting in a in a, in a small concrete room. I had no windows. I spent six months in a room with no windows, and um, an incredibly stressed out environment because all the people that were supposed to support me in, in therapy and in becoming a therapist potentially were so stressed out of their minds and doing so much admin that they had zero time for me, which is fair enough um, under the conditions they were working in. But I basically was like, right, the world of therapy is not going to be mine in its current, in the form I know. My dad's a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I know how he used to do it. And I and I was sitting there in some brick room that I was hating. So I was like, right, okay, so it's not going to be um becoming a therapist then what um so yeah so since then i mean i had all kinds of jobs when i moved to london i became a bike tour guide i sold incredibly crap and i still kind of feel guilty for that um advertisements for a magazine uh, just to get by because it's like i need to figure out what i want to do um and then eventually someone took a chance on me and i ended up in a coaching uh, ai coaching startup so we combined coaching with artificial intelligence. Very interesting. I became their CEO eventually. And um, But on the operations side, um, surrounded by very good coaches and um, therapists. And I was like, oh, right. Okay. There are other ways to work with people in, a, in an interesting way. Um, just not the traditional route. So, And that inspired me to... Um, yeah, go down the path of, okay, can I find my way of working with people? And um, yeah, and then from there, I I took a break. <laughs> I ended up playing in a Bollywood movie, which is a bit of a side story, I guess. Oh, wow. You went to India? Uh, yes, yes. I recorded a, a Bollywood movie. It was even on Netflix. Um, so yeah, and in there, there were a lot of guys who were playing hockey in Italy. It was for a hockey movie. And um guys a lot of the guys in that movie team they were um playing in india and a friend of mine arranged for us to go and play in india kind of uh, in italy with them so i quit my job moved to italy lived in italy for three months wanted to start my own company around personal development and then basically everything i was planning bear in mind i was highly inequipped to become an entrepreneur at that time (laughs) and maybe i still am um i came across the nomad mba and the nomad mba was basically taking people on trips for three months at a time, teaching them how to become an entrepreneur and um, taking them on their self-development journey. So instead of starting my own, I um, I joined the Nomad MBA, which is now with the same founder who we're running Innate with. So the founder of Innate is Harry, and he also started this Nomad MBA. Yeah. How many people participated in the programs that you were a part of? Um, I think we ran about eight programs. So they were three months at a time. Um, so yeah, eight times... 25 200 Um, people so about 200 people we had through yeah so you've guided all these people or you've supported them in their journey to live entrepreneurial lives to live meaningful lives yeah what would you say are the main themes Mm. or the main questions that keep coming back for people yeah well the first one is how do i live for myself that's that's fundamentally the question there i think um 
Most of them would come from a corporate background. They would have ticked all the boxes. They satisfied everyone except themselves. That was fundamentally what they came with. Like, right, I, I'm, I was promised a nice life if I go to school, get good grades, make friends, uh, go to university, get that first job in a big corporate. Um, I think maybe to a certain extent you can relate mm-hmm. to this, right? You tick all the boxes and you're supposed to then have a good life. Yeah. And then you get there and you're like, what the hell is this? Disappointment, right? Oh, sheer disappointment. I right? was disappointed at this point as well with my first job, working so hard, yeah. putting my suit on every day. And I was like, this can't be the life. This can't be the life of my dream. But it took me a while to figure out what it was, what yeah. the alternative was. Yeah, yeah. So that was the question that people came with. What's yeah. the alternative then? And um, so that, yeah, a a meaning crisis, which fundamentally at the same time plays out as an identity crisis. So, yeah, if I'm not all of those things that I've developed over the last 25, 30 years, if that's not me because it doesn't resonate, then who am I? Then who do I want to be? So that was fundamentally the question that everyone came with. And then very quickly you step into the world of, well, now I have to think for myself. Jesus Christ, that's scary. How do I do that? Um, and um, if, if no one else tells me what to do, how do I know I'm good enough? Which is often translated in, I am not good enough. Mm. I need someone else to tell me I'm good enough because I've never developed that sense in myself. Uh, again, through no fault of any individual, and I can very much relate to it. Um, yeah. Then if those topics resonate or if you recognize them oh they definitely resonate uh it's really finding direction in life and finding a place where your skills are aligned with what the world needs and what what is kind of meaningful Mm. and it's really powerful to meet other people that are on that that similar journey so what i liked about your program is how you guys combined like the the international life with education and the Mm. entrepreneurship so that definitely resonates and how do you actually uh, coach people? I mean, we also had like a few sessions. I think you're a very uh, good coach because you ask relevant questions. Mm-hmm. But what is your approach when someone comes with a question? And how do you blend coaching and breath work in this approach? Yes, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, I think the truth is in, 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 in therapy or in coaching, the topic that people come to you with is rarely the topic that you start working on, right? People come in and they they say, I experienced X and I want to work on that. Um, okay. And then we have a first conversation. And really what I try to do is um, in the first conversation, all I try to pick up on is um, what are the feelings slash emotional words that people use, Right. I feel so frustrated with my boss because X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. Frustrated. There's frustration. Okay. Can you be with the frustration for a bit? Oh, <laughs> okay. And there we go. Right. Then we're off. Um, so so I think that's where the coaching starts. It's right. Can we use the language? Because very often people won't talk in, in embodied language yet. They'll, they'll use words. So I think my job as a coach is to pick up on those words and to create space for them because the context in which they happen in which they happen is often not that relevant um something gets played out in the context but it's a feeling or an emotion that lives in you that you're playing out into the world so that's where my first focus is like what are the what are the the the, the feeling and emotional words that you use and then from there um we can go to the breath 
because through the breath, we can access those feelings a little bit more. We can create space for them uh, and we can process them. We can go full circle with them because apparently there's, there's, I don't know, when there's anger, probably there's a boundary that's been broken. There's a value that's been stepped on, right? Or when there's sadness, it's like, okay, there's a sense of hopelessness. So what were you hoping for that you are not achieving and, and where's the resistance to actually going for it, right? These are all feelings and they all live in the body. So that's where the breath comes in. And then afterwards, we go back into the coaching. So we review the session, we deeply integrate it because we do live in the real world. So how do we find a way to live in a more um, authentic way in the world? And how do we operate from a deep sense of truth and authenticity in the world? Um, and I think that starts with understanding your own feelings, knowing how to regulate them, and then functionally express them in the world. Hmm. So that's what a session would look like. So when a certain emotion comes up, like sadness, that's also maybe a sign that the person was hoping for something. And then you can dig deeper. Yeah. Um, when we did the breath work, it was also part of uh, releasing. I still had to release maybe an attachment to someone that I've been dating, or maybe the idea that I would live in Costa Rica. Yeah. And then the breath work can be very powerful. Yeah. But is releasing, is that kind of part of your approach? Is that like, something that comes comes up often it's not a goal um and and this actually bothers me a bit um <laughs> if i'm very honest um you know when i see an instagram and i see and i see videos it's like always like the person deeply crying and the breath worker <laughs> caressing them and deeply holding them and, and looking with intense eyes i mean you know the pictures right <laughs> yes i guess we can relate to this and i'm like to a certain extent sure i guess that's truth i don't know why it has to be filmed so intensely side note um but there is this emphasis and i think it's very western on like um how can i win at breath work who has the biggest cathartic moment who shouts the loudest who cries the deepest mm -hmm. who goes through the most pain which is still that competitive inauthentic i still have to win at something i just found a different vehicle to do so so i guess the answer to your question is sometimes nothing happens I've had people breathing saying, yeah, that was pretty chill. And I believe that's exactly what they needed at that moment in time. Sure, a, mere, a more or a better um, breath worker might have gotten more out of someone. But in mm -hmm. itself, I don't believe that's a goal. At the same time, um, and this goes back to how any trauma, trauma is a very loaded word these days, but it can be, like I said, very something very small. It's like um, whenever attention gets stuck, the body will have a natural tendency to process it because there's a stuckness and a healthy body moves. So the body and, and will guide uh, your, 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 your whole being towards situations where it can process whatever it was that happened. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, I mean, there was this, this beautiful conversation. It was a podcast and it can sometimes be confrontational to hear, but he was talking about, how someone says, yeah, I always have in my relationships that uh, I'm the one who takes care of the other person. And that happened in seven of my relationships. It's like, no, you didn't have seven relationships. You had one relationship. Mm. You just played it out with seven different people. Mm. Because somewhere deep down, we're trying to go full circle, right? In Gestalt therapy, they call it the Gestalt. You have to finish the picture. Mm. And as long as you don't do that, as long as that's not released, and it doesn't have to go through deep, hard, loud screams, but as long as something is not released, that energy will be inside of you. Mm. Um, so in that sense, yes, there is um, 
most of the times there is some form of release. Yeah. yeah. So with Gestalt, there's a pattern that you need to keep repeating until you can release it. Mm -hmm. And did you have something in your life that you had to keep repeating? How long have we got? <laughs> until it was released? <laughs> yes, absolutely, of course. Um, the other day when we did a breathwork session, um, you were in Erisera, actually. We asked the question, um, what's a lesson that you've been repeatedly given the opportunity to learn mm. that you haven't taken on board yet? Ah. Right? And I think that's fundamentally the key question. It's right? a nice way of framing. Instead of like um, feeling guilty about it or feeling ashamed, it's like celebrating that you could learn it multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. And that apparently you weren't ready yet. Because mm. if you would have been ready, you probably would have adopted it. Um God, where to start? Um, for me, a huge topic has been around boundaries and um, daring to live in my own truth and daring to speak my own truth. And every time I don't do that, either I hurt myself or I hurt someone else. It's as simple as that. When I'm not being truthful, I hurt myself or I hurt someone else. And this this is a lesson that, first of all, throughout my journey when I was, well, probably when we met, I didn't even know I was being so untruthful to myself and to others. I was just playing my part in the world in the context. Um, then you start to develop a little bit of a sense of self. It was actually an MDMA trip that completely blew my mind and it, and it opened my world beyond mm. like that. I was like, shit, okay, this is a real feeling. Sure. It's synthetic, but it's real. How do I live a life more in alignment with that without having to take the substance? Because um, apparently there is a sense of deep happiness that one can experience. So, so that's what I started doing. I started to find ways where I truthfully um, and honestly felt that feeling, not in a hedonistic way, but in a, in a meaningful sense-making way. Um, so yeah, and through breathwork, you, you start to get closer and closer and closer to your own reality until you start to speak the language of your own truth. And that's what it has done for me. And, and I'm still messing this up tons of times. And I still have fights with my partner or I realize that I've been friends with someone that I'm like, oh, I don't even know why, to be honest, right? And it's very confrontational and it's very painful. But I do strongly believe that when we speak our actual truth, a part of it will always be accepted by the other person. You might get rejected. You might get anger. It might be what it is. But if it's truthful and if it's honest, you know, and the other person feels that. So that's a lesson that I've had to learn over and over again. And yeah. I'm still learning. I like how you say that. So even though you reject someone, if the person feels it's truthful, at some point they can see it, right? They can understand it because they feel it's the truth. Yeah. And that maybe matters more than the, the rejection. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I feel the pattern has been, I'm not sure if I've released it already, but it's like my romantic interactions seem to end in a bit of a dramatic situation. And then I get really upset and ashamed and kind of like angry, like, oh, I should have done it differently. Yeah. But then I really take it onto myself that I sh should have done things differently yeah. instead of really trusting that that was maybe not the right match. Yeah. So that's kind of... Uh, yeah. And why the drama? Yeah, why the drama? Uh, I feel I can't let go of it and then I keep coming back or keep wanting clarification yeah. or keep ruminating about it. Yeah. And then the other person can also get annoyed. So that can then turn into a drama because it, it kind of drags on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's no clear end because there's no absolute truth. 
maybe being spoken at that moment in time. Yeah. Or there might be something that wants to be finished. What's the unfinished process that needs to happen, which is why the dragging on happens. Yeah. Right. Something wants to be released. Something wants to be said or done. And it's not. So yeah. It keeps living on. Uh, That's fundamentally how trauma works. Yeah. Right. There's so, a pain and it lives on. So do you also mean that I maybe don't speak up and then it keeps dragging on? Yeah. First of all, are you aware of if something, okay. When two people break up, this is not about you, right? But when two people break up, there's a couple of options. Both are super happy with the breakup and there is no tension, right? <laughs> yeah. Because if you're both super happy with it, you go, Hey, high five. Hey, we went through this experience and that was that. Yeah. I think when one of the two doesn't want it to end, and that is not fully acknowledged, whether that's rage, whether that's feelings of betrayal, whether that's feelings of sadness, if that's not fully acknowledged, then where does that energy go? Do you know how much energy is needed to suppress a full human being into depression? Mm. So there's a lot of energy there yeah. to keep someone down or to, no, no, uh, I can't say this, or I'm not allowed to say this, or as a man, right? What's a healthy form of rage? What's a healthy form of anger? Right, rather than the the, the 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 more toxic versions of which it comes out into the world. If all of that energy is not expressed, where does it go? Nowhere. Stays in the body. Right? So it lingers on. So I have to keep interacting with you because a part of me really wants to express it. I can't. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you fully speak your own truth um, after a breakup, and maybe that takes a couple of times, right? It's not just one conversation, but then at least your part is done. Right, it's it's interesting that sometimes when we're broken up with, that um, one of the two people cries for three months and then is absolutely fine, and the people and the person that broke up with the person crying <laughs> is still going on about that breakup, still going yeah. on about that breakup, right? And it's a bit like the um, well, the story that comes to mind is the two monks at the river. Um, and have you heard that? Probably, I, I heard about it, but please tell yeah. me again. No, no, it's like I, I know a lot of people use this, but it's like. Um, two monks coming at a river and they're not supposed to touch women, but there's a woman who wants to cross the river. One takes the woman on his back and they both cross the river. He puts the woman down and they continue. And four hours later or two days later, the other monk says, oh, I can't believe you had that woman on your back. And he says, yes, but the difference is that I dropped her off at the river and you're still carrying her. Mm. Right? So the frustration lives on because that person didn't speak his truth. Uh. Right? And for me, that's what that's about. Um, yeah, that's an important lesson. Yeah, speaking your truth. And sometimes I find it difficult. In the moment, maybe I hold back, and then later I say, "I wish I said this." Yeah. And then you're, there's a certain politeness, but it's also not truthful, right? It can be not truthful. Yeah, or we or we compromise. Yeah. Right. Or we do a. Um, hey, uh, by the way, can I just? Uh, I just wanted to say a little. It's just a little thing. Uh, by the way, you can. We already start dismissing it before we even said it. So yeah. is it then the full truth? Probably not. Will someone receive it that way? No. Whereas, and I think we all know this, when we're in a room and someone speaks their absolute truth, everyone is listening, right? And we've been, we, we felt that. Sometimes mm -hmm. fantastic leaders have it, but even it can be like your five-year-old, if you have kids, when they speak their absolute truth, you listen and it resonates and you know there's nothing to argue with because that's your full and honest experience. It's when there's fragility on the sides, that's when the... That's when the friction happens, I think. Mm. Yeah. So breathwork brought you closer to your own truth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And um, how do you... Um, um, what can I ask? 
maybe I want to ask about your card deck. It's a little <laughs> side topic. Yeah. But you created a card deck with 31 cards mm. to support people in their breathwork journey. Is that also a tool to find truth or what is that about? Yeah. I mean, I felt, um, first of all, it was an absolute experiment. Mm. Um, it was, a <laughs> I ended up telling bedtime stories to my girlfriend. I thought it was my stories, but um, apparently my voice was calming and she fell asleep. But eventually I was running out of stories to tell. So um, I started to make up stories. Eventually I turned one of those stories into a little cartoon and a little book. And I gave it to my cousins or my nieces and nephews as a, as a Christmas gift. I was like, oh, that's cool. This book is little illustrations and written by Stephen for them as a gift. They'll probably in 20 years realize this was a special gift. At three-year-old, they just looked at it and went, ah, oh, book. Slightly disappointed on my side. But um, I really enjoyed making the product. And I realized like, hey, I enjoy writing. I enjoy creating a physical product. And there's something about giving a physical product to another person. Like, hey, this is something I made and I give it to you. So I really enjoyed that process. So I was like, right, okay. And at the same time, I was getting interested in breathing. I was struggling to find um, interesting exercises. And I always had to go on my phone. Um, so I was like, right, what product might be useful there? Well, it's very simple. A diverse, very diverse um, range of potential breathing exercises, non-technology. So a card deck was actually pretty obvious. So yeah, I started to create it. Did my homework, um, found a fantastic supplier, and uh, yeah, now the car tech is there, and it really helps. Um, the feedback I've been getting is that it's um, a good source of inspiration. So I don't necessarily give them to people saying you have to do what the car tech says. It's more like, hey, if you want to explore breath work, here are some tools and tricks and ways you can you can do so, um, but make it your own. Turn this into your own exercise that works for you. Um, so yeah, a tool of, um, of empowerment, I guess, uh, to help people connect to the breath and, and I guess through that more to themselves. It feels good to give something tangible, right? To someone. Yeah. yeah. Have you done that? Have you I've created same, physical products? I have the same with my podcast. When I meet someone uh, that I feel can benefit from a certain topic, mm. I share a specific episode with them. Like, Hey, this one could serve you. Yeah. It feels like you're, you're giving a, giving gifts. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good to be creative in that way. I think. And do you feel people actually use it? Because I can imagine it's cool for you to create. Mm. Do you think people actually use it? Or is it also a bit more like a symbolic thing? A bit of both. I think um, I've definitely had feedback of people using it. And these are people I don't know, right? So it's not just my mom buying 20 decks. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so far, <laughs> I've heard people actually using it. I'm not going to lie, it does surprise me sometimes, just because you're like, you know, and this is probably my inner critic, but like, yeah, well, who would actually use this? Right? <laughs> Come on, who does actually use it? But people have said they have. Um, I mean, someone from the, actually the group here bought a deck and they actually brought it along with them, which they obviously didn't have to. So apparently, yeah, people really use it. They enjoy it. Um, and yeah, and they send me little messages saying like, Hey, I'm on the beach now and doing one of the exercises. And you're like, Oh, fantastic. That's huge. Um, and also I think it's a nice gift. I think it's nice to give someone the breath, um, rather than, uh, another book or a pair of socks. Um, so yeah, uh, that's great. I think it's really nice to create your, uh, uh yeah, your own product. It also makes your, your offering more serious, right? I guess more, so. more complete. Yeah. Yeah. Was it easier for you to step into that new role 
of let's say full-time breathwork entrepreneur facilitator coach because i know that there's an increasing amount of people stepping into this field but not everyone can let's say economically live from it yeah no it wasn't but i had no other option (laughs) (laughs) i um after doing all the trips with nomad mba um i pushed way beyond my own boundaries right maybe in the what we just figured out in human design i'm the i'm the person that takes care of others Um, (laughs) you're the projector i'm the projector yes we figured that out so i'm um I'm very capable of ignoring my own needs on other people's behalf, a very untruthful behavior. And um, well, I did that, right? And maybe you can imagine if you have 30 people looking at you for three months straight, whilst you're not in your home environment and you have your own soothing um, and nourishing simple self requirements, um, it gets the better of you a little bit. So originally when COVID hit, that was an absolute blessing. I was like, oh my God, wow, I can just sit in my room and I have to do nothing. <laughs> this is great. Obviously, didn't stay like that. Um, but no, and then I really started to feel like, wow, I have this, this grinding pressure in my chest and it's just not going away. I'd wake up with it. I'd go to bed with it. Um, very rarely did I not feel it. And I really started to become inquisitive. I'm like, what is this, you know? Um and yeah, the only solution or the only the only conclusion that I could draw from it was I'm just I'm just very stressed out mm. in my own body and I and I need to really deeply take care of myself. Um and once I started to acknowledge that, talking about processing, um the emotions came with it. So mm. it wasn't just a feeling anymore, but an emotion. So was it a burnout? I don't know, but I guess a form of light, yeah. maybe. Um so yeah, and um, Nomad MBA came to an end. We started an online community. It was a lot of fun, but also Harry, um, the, the co-founder, um, and I decided, no, this should end because we don't know when Corona is going to end. And um, yeah, also we feel like even if we would be able to do this project again, we've missed two and a half years. So there's been no progress. We go back to something we were doing two years ago. Um, so yeah, so I had time. Um, and I felt really ready for it. Um, at the same time, I was not able to work for a boss yet. I was just not reliable because I decided to let my feeling in my chest be my guide for what I could take on. And sometimes that was nothing more than an hour of maybe doing some very simple work. Um, there was nothing else I could physically do. And some days were a little bit better. So, yeah, as paradoxically as it may sound, my only solution was I have to start working for myself. I have to start my own company because that's the only way I can guarantee that I can just that morning wake up and do nothing if I need to. Um, So that's why I started uh, this project. Yeah, breathwork coaching and uh, experiences. So um, was it easy to step in? No, I think it's never easy to start your own project. They say sometimes necessity is the mother of all inventions. Oh, there we go. Did you hear about that saying? No. But I think in your case, if there's a certain necessity, certain urgency, it's sometimes easier to step into it, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, or not easy, but it, if you go all in, yeah. like if you don't have a compromise, like with the island project, yeah. the chance of succeeding is higher. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's, that's beautiful. I also still want to ask you about nervous system regulation, mm. because earlier in this retreat, you mentioned that this is an important part. But can you share a bit about it? Sure. I mean, um, every living being, as far as I'm aware, maybe not some 
maybe jellyfish don't, I don't know. But basically, fundamentally, we all have a nervous system. And our nervous system is is our fundamentally our experience of the world through our body. And um, a healthy nervous system uh, goes up and down, right? It sometimes goes into high energy um, situations, right? Which might be a fight. It might also be ecstatic joy, right? Um, and, uh, and it experiences the lows and it experiences energy in terms of power and strength and it experiences deep relaxation. And a healthy nervous system knows how to fluctuate naturally between those moments, right? And you see animals do it all the time, right? Dogs get excited and then they shake it off, right? So there's a high energy moment, they physically shake and they go back to a normal state. Um, human beings don't shake that often, right? Or we don't find ways to, to regulate ourselves. And that means that the nervous system becomes unregulated. It becomes... Um, the, 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 the trigger points become highly sensitive um, or we just, um, when we're experiencing stress for too long, so we can go into complete collapse. So our nervous system just basically can't handle the world anymore. And we go into a fawn or um, a freeze response, right? And you see animals do this the same, right? You see the little antelope that literally is just hanging from a lion when it's, when it's caught and it can't move anymore. It's completely not there anymore. Um, and then the lion walks away and it brings itself back to life. Now that's a healthy nervous system, right? It can it can enjoy the peaks, it can it can tolerate the the, the troughs, um, and it moves in between. Now, an unhealthy nervous system gets stuck. That's fundamentally what that stuckness is that we've been talking about, and that creates the tension in the body. So a healthy nervous system fluctuates, just like a body needs to constantly move right when we sit still we get pain like how many people do we know with back pain or neck pain right i mean yeah when you mention it people <laughs> move right when you mention posture nine out of ten people will move their body because somewhere deep down they know uh -uh, this is not the right position by the way we're both moving now. um so so that's fundamentally what nervous system regulation is it's learning to regulate ourselves and in a, in a healthy context this is what society is supposed to teach us right we live in small tribes um, our uh, our emotions are shared amongst us. We see someone cry, we see someone recover, we see someone happy, we see someone go back to normal, we see someone serious, and we see someone sad. And, and we're supposed to learn that through society in our contact with other people, either a parent or, or, or caretaker or friends or whatever that might be, close relatives, uncles, aunts, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, but we live so isolated these days and parents are so busy that um yeah our, our nervous systems are quite screwed <laughs> um plus a highly stressful uh, society um that puts so much pressure on our nervous system that we just i mean burnout depression anxiety three very clear signs of unregulated nervous systems so in our current society burnout depressions anxiety are going through the roof mm. breath work is one of the solutions uh, to to reduce this a little bit yeah so maybe as a last question, at the beginning, you shared your, your recipe. Mm. So if people now want to uh, start implementing your recipe, yeah. what type of advice do you have for practical next steps? Yeah, buy the card deck. No. <laughs> <laughs> You're more commercial than I <laughs> You asked the question. Uh, no, just kidding. I think um, 
there's a couple of breathing practices that are very simple, right? Um, there's there's four simple breathing gui guidelines that you can use, which is, in general, if you can, breathe through the nose. Whenever, at any moment in time, see if you can breathe through the nose. That's the first big one to help regulate your nervous system. It cleans the air, it warms it up, it basically prepares the air for the lungs. Um, and it slows you down, right? Breathing through the nose automatically slows us down. Um, so let go of mouth breathing. Your mouth is for eating, your nose is for breathing. Um, so yeah, just gentle practices to start to speak the language of your body and your breath is your access point. So with every emotional state, there's a certain breathing pattern, right? And, and we know this intuitively. When I say, how do you breathe when you're angry? You automatically will change your breathing when you imagine being angry. The same goes for happiness or joy. So you can start to use the breath and checking in with the breath to understand how you actually physically feel right now. What is my dominant state right now? Oh God, I'm stressed or actually I'm angry or I'm frustrated or whatever it may be. So you can just by slow breathing, and it doesn't really matter what you do, maybe with an emphasis on the exhale. So a simple exercise would be breathing in through the nose for four seconds, breathing out through the nose for eight. Extending the exhale. Right? And when we extend our exhale, we activate our parasympathetic nervous system, which is rest and digest. It's calming down. It's the nervous system that's most active when we sleep, when we recover. Um, so that those are simple practices. Just breathe through the nose and start to extend your exhale. Once you start to get more comfortable, um, my own practice, what I do is I go to Spotify. I put on Discover Weekly because I know it's songs I like. And I start to breathe. And I start standing. And all I do is I follow the energy. So I breathe slow when I feel like I need to breathe slow. I breathe quick when I need to breathe quick. I start to move the body parts I want to come alive. And I do that sometimes for two hours straight. And I make the weirdest sounds. I make the weirdest movements. I shake it all out. I lie on the floor. Sometimes I cry. Sometimes I laugh hysterically. But all I do is just stay in the moment and stay fully present with whatever is alive in you. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically a full spectrum you can experience. And fundamentally, any breathwork exercise that you find, whether it's online or what someone does, fundamentally, you're, you're interacting with your nervous system. And when the emphasis is on the inhale, there will be some activation. When the emphasis is on the exhale, there will be some relaxation. So any exercise you find online, whether it's pranayama, Wim Hof, um, nervous system regulation exercises, coherence breathing, fundamentally, that's what you're playing with. So I guess my point there is start to discover for yourself what way of breathing works for you. Am I feeling a bit down? Maybe I need some activation. Do I feel stressed? I need some relaxation. It's fundamentally what it works with. Um, so those are the practices that I would advise. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for sharing your wisdom. I really enjoyed our conversation and reconnecting with you again after eight years. Yes. And um, yeah, thank you for your time. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. Mm -hmm.